Richard Barker is the founder of New Medicine Partners and the founding director of the Center for the Advancement of Sustainable Medical Innovation, also known as CASMI, where he championed the concept of adaptive licensing. He is the former EU head of McKinsey's healthcare practice and was also the general manager of IBM's healthcare business. Dr. Barker was the director general of the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, ABPI, for six years between 2004 and 2011. Richard is currently chairman of the Health Innovation Network of South London and a member of the Celgene Board of Directors. Richard, it is, as always, great to see you, sir. Likewise. We're here in your offices at the Health Innovation Network of South London. It's quite impressive, I have to say. So the Health Innovation Network, which, as you point out, is uh, covering South London, is one of 15 things which are rather gloriously called academic health science networks. Mm -hmm. But their mission is the spreading of and adoption of new technologies across the NHS. Mm -hmm. Because the NHS has not covered itself in glory over the past (laughs) in uh, the the uptake of innovation. So it's a very necessary thing. It was uh, founded about seven years ago after a major report that I was involved in, Innovation, Health and Wealth. Uh, and I think largely these, these organizations are doing a very good job. I'm delighted with the performance of ours. So they, they take and sponsor technologies. They make sure that they're properly um, trialed and the right evidence is collected around them and then spread them across our patch, but importantly across the whole national patch. So give, let me give you an example. We have, sure. a, uh, we have a very low technology but very effective way of dealing with joint pain mm-hmm. called escape pain. And this is something that's been pioneered by physiotherapists here in uh, South London and it's now spreading right the way across the country uh, and you, there are similar initiatives in areas like atrial fibrillation um, so some of the technology is not very very advanced but the most important thing is that good practice is spread around and I read your report that you the government report that you were involved in about technology gaps and, and one of the key findings of that report was that you're developing great technology but there's a a sort of a wall or a barrier to actually implementation. Is that what you're trying to do here, is sort of cover that gap? There are several gaps, two in particular. There's one, I think, between the academics who do research and a real practical solution. Right. And then there is another with a real practical solution that may or may not have reimbursement and actual uptake in the NHS. Um, and so we need continuing cultural change in the academic end of this so that academics don't think they have completely finished the development of something before someone else can say, look, that's implementable. Right. Uh, and the other, of course, is that the NHS um, doesn't have this well-worn process for taking up new technology. Sometimes it's a matter of money, but interestingly, it's often a matter of doctor's time. Mm-hmm. Doctors in the NHS, like many parts of the world, are very pressed for time. And so it's often their ability to focus in on incorporating a technology into their practice. That's the second big barrier. Ten years ago, we worked with uh, the Karolinska Institute. We did a survey of doctors about data sharing and data platforms and creating a real-world data infrastructure. And it was fascinating because we asked a rather anodyne question. You know, would you agree with um, totally confidential infrastructure to share data? Patients, yes. And researchers, yes. And industry, yes. But practitioners, you know, 75% no. And it was really quite shocking. It seems to be a cultural barrier as well. It is. And obviously with GDPR, which I'm sure most of your listeners yes. will have heard of we're increasingly going to be putting the hands put in, putting into the hands of patients the decision about who should, who should get what data around them so I think this will gradually change but you're quite right one of the barriers has been the doctors believe that they own the data right. the results from their ma- uh, practice of medicine and that, that's got to evolve it's quite interesting because you've also started new medicine partners which is about also looking at these sustainable
sustainable implementations of new technology and developing infrastructures that work best for patients. So it seems rather aligned to what you're doing here. Can you tell me a bit about your new venture, New Medicine Partners, and what do you hope to achieve? Yeah, sure. We're, we're focused very much on precision medicine or even better stated precision health because mm-hmm. you can apply a personalized approach to wellness as well as the treatment of disease. And as most people realize, um, precision medicine comes in a, in a range of technologies. The, probably the most talked about are the genomic technologies that help d- direct a cancer therapy or, a, or deal with a, um, an inherited disease. But it goes all the way through to the use of personalized or personalizable digital tools. Mm-hmm. We work with governments to establish what infrastructure will make the most sense for them to introduce precision health into their health services. We work with companies that might have personalizable or targetable medicines, but often don't take account of what diagnostic infrastructure is there. Right. And of course, unless you have the testing infrastructure that enables you to direct the medicine, you won't sell the medicine. We're also working with digital companies and figuring out how they can incorporate their standalone digital solutions into what's going to evolve into a digital transformation of health services. How how will their piece integrate into the total solution? And you come from a diagnostic background as well, part of your impressive career. You were the head of diagnostics at Chiron, Chiron, which was acquired by Novartis. And so you actually managed to pull a unit and have it flourish. Yeah, diagnostics is a tough business. I remember when I was first uh, uh, hired as as president of the diagnostics division, I stood up in front of a whole bunch of analysts and they said, excuse me, you used to be uh, a uh, consultant with McKinsey. What led you into a high technology, low margin business? (laughs) And low volume, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, the very very advanced uh, um, diagnostic technologies are pretty low volume, you're quite right. But of course, again, there's a whole gamut from a very basic blood work that you and I will have on a on a regular basis see how we're doing mm-hmm. all the way through to these very sophisticated things used in inherited diseases and cancer now getting back to your biotech startup Chiron that was successfully acquired and, and you and I've had this discussion on numerous occasions about the challenge we're currently having creating biotechs in Europe that are actually developing into European champions. Europe's spinning out a lot of technology, but 70% of it right now is being acquired in the United States or being moved. The IP is being gobbled up and moved to the United States. Why do you think this is happening? Why do you think we're not creating these companies here in Europe and they're not staying? What do we need to do? Well, it obviously uh, derives from the rather conservative nature of the finance Mm -hmm. uh, industry here in Europe. Not everybody, but most people are pretty alarmed by the high risk but high reward uh, kind of profile. Uh, whereas on in the States, particularly in the major clusters in Boston, San Francisco, San Diego, you've got lots of sources of finance, venture capital, but also other sources of finance that have le- have learnt that if you are somewhat patient, you can get re- really high returns. But the other part of it is actually skills. I was just reading a McKinsey report on mm-hmm. the biotech industry, which says, yeah, essentially, as you and I will have discussed before, the technology is great here. The to- technology is almost as good on average 
leverage as you see in the United States. Absolutely. But the availability of senior leadership and their ability to, to retain those senior leaders, whether we be talking about scientific leaders or, or business leaders, is much less. Um, and so that, that combination of the fact that we often lose people to the states who have a bit of experience, um, but also the inability to get real uh, funding here. Having said that, the UK has done a much better job than almost anywhere else in Europe raising uh, capital around biotech. So if you look at the f figures published by the Bioindustry Association, the BIA, they're really quite impressive and they have continued despite the problems I'm sure we're going to go on to talk about associated with Brexit. Yeah. Um, the UK what's, biotech... What's, bre what's Brexit? Exactly. <laughs> um, the, the UK biotech scene is actually flourishing, but it, as you ask the question to compare the European situation with the US situation, I think it's this combination of experience in your leadership and and uh, adventurous money. One of the things we've also heard in, in discussions with several CEOs of current companies who recently did an IPO on the NASDAQ in the U.S. To, to move and capitalize and move through phase two is that they're being, particularly with a lot of the gene and stem cell and CAR-T therapies here, they're being cannibalized through the hospital exemption. Now, a lot of people don't know what the hospital exemption is, but when the advanced therapies regulation was passed in 2008, there was an exemption there where you could actually develop and uh, some would say cannibalize a current commercial product at the hospital level. And we are seeing that this is having a demonstrable impact on a lot of innovation. What's your opinion of balancing the need for local academic ability to use stem cells and human derived tissues, which obviously according to the Bustle ruling since 2009 are not patentable. So, okay. How do you deal with that, but also deal with the reality that you have to try and create a commercial business? How do you balance that? Well, we've seen that actually in the diagnostics business for a long sure. time. The um, homebrew kind of uh, diagnostics produced in hospitals. The key thing is quality and consistency of quality. So in diagnostics, for example, there have been a variety of studies that show that hospital-derived diagnostics don't have the same consistency than commercially developed diagnostics, which is not surprising, actually, no. because the commercial entities know they have to put their products through pretty tough regulation. So they've done the technical validation and the clinical validation of their products, which they, the uh, diagnostics developed in the, you know, the basements of hospitals don't always have to meet. When we move to um, therapy, and we moved to cell therapies, and in particular, you mentioned CAR-T therapy. Um, I think that you see this phenomenon around the world now, particularly in China, which has got, got the CAR-T message very strongly, but mm -hmm. most of the tri trials and studies being done are being done by individual hospitals. My concern will be the same, that quality will not be as, as reliable from, from the point of view of the patients in that way. I mean, in the short run, obviously, you can get the patient cells and process them and re-inject re them relatively readily within the walls of a single hospital. But how do you know that the process and protocols being used are both um, you know, international quality and reproducible from one patient to another? Uh, I've been on the board at Celgene for a while, uh, and I've toured the facilities that we built to create CAR-T therapies. That's very tough stuff. It it's is. It's very, 
very challenging to get it right. And uh, the, the chances, I think, that an individual hospital will replicate that ability, that, co- that quality of process and consistency of management that in a major commercial company you get uh, is quite small. So if I was a patient, I'm not sure I would readily undergo a, a, a procedure where I'm one of a very small handful of patients that Dr. X has, has um, experimented on with his CAR-T. So I think the, the commercial uh, sector will steadily demonstrate its superiority. But of course, always, uh, particularly when we're dealing with procedures, and uh, in, a, in a sense, CAR-T is a procedure, not, not an individual standalone yeah, drug. A, it's a supply chain process, really. I, yeah. Exactly. So um, you know, the medical world has always innovated in that regard. So I wouldn't want to stop doctors seeking to innovate in this, in this way. We're going to move, as you um, may be anticipating, from the autologous process where you take an individual patient's cells, you uh, do your genetic engineering on, and re-inject into that same patient over time to allergenic um, yeah. pooled cells from, from uh, healthy patients or many patients, uh, healthy uh, individuals or many patients. I suspect that that will get steadily more reproducible and will bring down the costs. Yes. And so I think that might be one of the, the, the things that will make it less likely that every hospital will feel it needs to produce its own CAR-T. Celgene bought Juno. Uh, you picked up Juno off the back end of the failed rocket trial. And I was at a conference in February, an international conference, where one of these hospital-exempted trials was putting out some data and showing there, and they had a series of adverse event category five, which are fatal events during the trial. I can't find that data. You can't find that data. That data is not published. It's nowhere to be seen. How do we fix the hospital exemption then? What do we do to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen? Uh, it's a question to which I don't have a ready answer. <laughs> and, and I was I hoping you, you would, Richard. You have, you have just very eloquently answered your own question about why, why uh, you know, the commercial approach might be superior here. Yeah. Um, I mean, that will have to take some kind of national or, or regional uh, you know, regulation uh, and, or, or legislation. I suspect the um, EMA, FDA, uh, MHRA here in the UK will, should be taking a pretty close interest in this whole field. If we're looking at Brexit, does the ability to maybe have the UK move in a different direction? So, for example, the UK says, okay, we're going through Brexit, we're not going to have to deal with the hospital exemption anymore. Do you think that if Brexit does happen, would, it, would there be some opportunities maybe to improve the regulatory process here in the UK? It could be. It could be. And I have heard that's not just the only example of the possibility that we could be uh, more progressive and or more um, take a somewhat different path, as you say, uh, from from our European colleagues. Uh, There's a lot of reluctance in the industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, to deviate too much because the UK market is obviously a much smaller market than the whole of Europe. For most drugs, too to 3% of the total global market. So most large international companies, like the one I've just mentioned, has real difficulty thinking about doing something separate for the UK. But from the UK's point of view, um, it's always possible that they could create a different framework for hospital exception. You mentioned the size of the, the market of the UK, 2 to 3%. There's currently some initiatives in the United States called International Reference Pricing or International Pricing Indexes, IPI, that's being trumpeted by Trump and Secretary Azar of Health and Human Services. The idea that the U.S. taxpayers, according to the U.S. government's own data, are currently funding 80 to 83% of the profit of global health pharmaceuticals. 
and Secretary Azar is deciding that we are now going to, in the United States, see pricing that is going to be based on an average basket of prices across the world, which includes the UK, Ireland, Italy, Slovenia, etc. This seems rather punitive, but what do you think would be the impact of forcing pricing down in America from the standpoint of access? Do you think there would be any impact here? Well, you, you don't have to be an advanced mathematician to see the beginning of a, of a cycle of decline in what mm. you've just described. I don't find international price referencing as a very sensible, progressive, sustainable approach to, to, to pricing. The UK, of course, has been a reference uh, for many, many years for many yeah. of the other countries. Um, I think the US is probably going to have to grapple with the problem of drug pricing. But I think this is the, the, the sort of the weapon of least... Uh, attractiveness from my point of view. Uh, the stated goal is to force drug prices up in Europe. Secretary Azar said, we want to raise prices in Europe. His direct quote was, if you can't raise prices in Europe, you need to fire the people you have and get better people. And so obviously it's a very simple problem, Richard. Do you think it's going to be easy <laughs> for you as a company to replace such a Good luck drug? with that. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, you know, so the European, it's not just Europe as a um, economic area, but every individual country has it, uh, control over its own drug pricing. Yeah. Uh, and I think the chances that you can persuade uh, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the Brits, and so on, to put up their prices to, to counterbalance this. I think a lot of the talk ignores the fact that there's pretty aggressive price discounting occurs in the U.S. for a very large proportion of the, of, of the demand. So the U.S. Ins private insurers um, are pretty good at negotiating down prices of drugs to a much closer to the European level than, than the list prices would suggest. The average was 1.8 times, so almost twice, but sometimes list prices are five or six times. Keeping with that point, Vertex has a cystic fibrosis drug that would treat roughly 2,000 patients a year in the UK if it was authorized, and they have been holding their guns and refusing to negotiate on pricing as Secretary Azar would suggest they do. And now it's becoming extremely controversial because members of the UK government have threatened their intellectual property and said, we're going to compulsory license you. We're going to just take your patents and produce it ourselves. Do you think that these extreme positions can be avoided? What do we need to do to m make this not happen? Now, the CF situation, cystic fibrosis situation, is very sad. Yes. Now, I don't think it's appropriate for me, not being inside those negotiations, to attribute any blame there. But I find it to be uh, really surprising that we can't have come up with a formula between the company and the government or company and the NHS that um, we seem to have been able to come up with in most other European countries. Uh, you're quite right. It looks like the, uh, the, the companies have been holding the line and the government is, uh, and NICE has been um, pretty obdurant as well. But with the kind of effects that cystic fibrosis has on kids and the, uh, the revolutionary nature of this medicine, I just find it sad. I, I, I don't have a solution. As I say, it'd be probably inappropriate for me to try and peer inside the negotiations, but they haven't worked. And how has the industry changed since you were at the ABPI then? Personalized medicine is taking hold but we have not essentially dropped the price of the regulatory side of the balance sheet. It's still a billion, $2 billion. It's inevitably you're spreading that money over smaller populations. How has it changed from your perspective? Yeah, so uh, let me not react to the one to two billion, which is obviously sure. an average, it's an average across yeah. um, you know, all the drugs that 
fail as well as all the drugs that succeed. Um, I think that governments and the NHS have become a bit more open-minded about this. There was a time where they couldn't imagine negotiating on a price-specific basis. They had the PPRS, the Pharmaceutical Price Regulation Scheme, which basically gave the companies the freedom to set prices. But now, because of the existence of NICE and the fact that it's taking sometimes two to three years longer for a drug to get into the UK market than uh, uh, other markets overseas... The stage is really set for a more detailed product-by-product negotiation, and I think that's beginning to happen. I think you've highlighted a a drug for which it hasn't succeeded, but I think it has succeeded in other areas. One of the things that we've seen in the U.S. is this concept of flexible pricing, where maybe we need to have a more flexible pathway, maybe come in at a lower price and then judge earlier, maybe avoid phase three, maybe come in at phase two, and, and you're smiling. People, the audience can't see, but you're smiling a little bit because you and I have fought many battles for this. Um, something called uh, what we're calling flexible pricing, what we're hearing in the U.S., but something that you and I probably better know as adaptive licensing. You were one of the main thought leaders on this with Gigi Hirsch and MIT and Hans Gay Reichler and several people. Do you think that this is a potential solution? It's starting to gain traction, Richard. Well, the, the original driving force for adaptive licensing, adaptive development... Adaptive pathways. Adaptive pathways um, was really to get, get the innovative stuff more rapidly to patients. But there's always been the possibility of what you might call adaptive reimbursement. So that a product that's approved on a conditional basis after phase two gets a, a, a price that recognizes that it looks very promising because you wouldn't do it unless it was a very promising drug, but that all the data is not yet in. Mm-hmm. I think the problem that industries have had th- with that concept is uh, that they've never seen prices go up. Right. Uh, and so you and I have both been in lots of discussions with the payers who say, well, of course, it's less good evidence, so we'll expect to start at a lower price, but show me the examples of where the price has gone up. I think it needs a, a courageous trailblazer here to show that that is possible, along with a reimbursement authority from one of the European countries that wants the drug, that knows it needs the drug, and sees uh, uh, an opportunity, maybe maybe the UK could be in this category, as you say, post the Brexit, of being able to be more flexible. I remember in one of the PPRSs we negotiated when I was at the ABPI, that in principle ability to raise the price on the basis of better quality evidence was inserted in one of the PPRSs, but I haven't really seen it used. No. And what's intriguing is, as we're reaching a point of no return with a lot of these pricing discussions, it seems that the industry is realizing, okay, we we need to start addressing this. This may be a, a solution. This actually is a place where we can all kind of sit down and agree. We had a lot of pushback here in Europe about that. We worked on the Adapt Smart project. It was really hard to get consensus. Is it going to take that level of animosity to start developing around pricing before we can actually move forward, do you think? No, I don't think animosity gets, gets us anywhere. A collaborative approach was what, if you remember, the whole adaptive mm-hmm. development was around. It was going, getting the people in the room across, so to speak, the divide, people from industry, but people from the... HTA agencies from the payer itself, from the regulatory agency, and getting them together at the beginning and saying what evidence is actually going to satisfy each of you. And that is beginning to happen here in the UK with something called the Accelerated Access Collaborative, the AAC. Mm-hmm. I was involved a couple of years back in something called the AAR, the Accelerated Access Review. Review. Yeah. And you know, rather slowly, but actually ultimately successfully, we have put together an AAC, uh, which by the way also contains a patient, senior patient advocate on on the group 
And the people inside this process tell me, I'm not inside this process, that actually the quality of the discussion is now pretty good and pretty senior. And so anything that gets on the radar screen of the AAC is getting the sort of quality of debate that I think it warrants. You know, products like the CAR-T will inevitably be in front of them. And so how you deal with the question of, you know, reimbursability, but also affordability. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are questions in the middle of this discussion that we're having. And it's much better that you have those discussions during the process development rather than collapse over the, over the line. And then, as you say, the animosity begins because yeah. patients want it. Doctors want to prescribe it. Uh, industry wants to uh, deliver it. But government hasn't budgeted for it. And now we've got a much better horizon scanning process here in the UK. Part of the problem with a lot of these particularly effective therapies, which Savaldi sort of cracked the case open on, which was, yes, it was a cure in 98, 98.9% of all patients. It was seen as fiendishly expensive, but when you actually calculate it out the entire pathway, it was a good value because you were reducing that tail risk of you know liver transplants, which are diabolically expensive and terribly invasive and take all sorts of suppressing drugs, tecromolis, et cetera. The problem practically is the drugs budget doesn't live in the hospital budget. That's five years from now, and politicians don't have a view more than six months. And so the reality of how the system would evolve, the mechanism just aren't there. Do you see these discussions actually starting to be implementable? Well, these discussions of the kinds of products that we're now talking about have to happen at a national level, yeah. um, which means England, actually, because there are separate discussions sure, right. that take place in <laughs> Scotland, etc. Um, and so th- I see some you know, glimmers of hope at a national level. If one, something has been demonstrated to be cost-effective in the way that the early CAR-Ts have by NICE, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, if it's seen that this is a product that the NHS wants and can use, and the hepatitis C example that you've just given is one where it, it's great that you can almost eliminate a disease. Um, similarly, the way in which we've treated HIV over the years. Or polio. Uh, no, polio. So I, I think that it's about getting the NHS to want to do it and therefore crack the problem, as opposed to being confronted with something it didn't expect, or maybe should have expected but didn't expect at the end of a development process, and then they're in the defensive. In cricketing terms, they're on the back foot. I don't know how many of your listeners uh, know know what I mean by that in cricket, but they're on the back foot, and therefore, um, instead of saying, let's figure out how to make this happen, they're saying, I'm afraid the rules say. Final question for you. What do you see are the biggest challenges over the next five years? Well, many of them have come up, I think, in in this conversation. So how do we move to more value-based um, reimbursement and reward for, uh, for precision medicines because they are likely to be more expensive in the way that you described? So that's, yeah. I think, one of them. Another is that as we get these tremendously specific therapies making sure that we're only using them where the diagnostics uh, suggest. And there are two challenges there. One is, are the tests being run that will enable you to use the, uh, the therapy on the most appropriate patients? And secondly, is the information, is the knowledge at the, uh, the fingertips of the doctor, not the most sophisticated doctor in the world at the top centre, but the most people who see patients in oncology and so on? I would say there's a third problem too, which is a lot of doctors will throw anything at a problem to see if it works. And we do see, even in CAR-T, we're seeing some off-label prescription beyond the 25-year window in ALL. So doctors sometimes, well, it is a practice, not a certainty, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's understandable in potentially terminal cancer. Absolutely. But I've actually started working through a little company I've created called MetAdvice, no longer very little, but to try and get a, 
an interface that integrates knowledge from the point of view of precision medicine at the fingertips of the doctor and actually learns as it goes along. It develops an algorithm that says, okay, so some of the things we're talking about can be provable through RCTs, through randomized control trials. But what about all those observations that individual doctors have about complex cases that never, because the numbers are so small, could never be uh, demonstrated by RCTs? How can we create a, a learning machine in the health system and then enable doctors to be able to deploy that knowledge at the interface with patients. It seems to be a fundamental unfairness of the modern world that if somebody, you, me, one of our relatives or friends gets a serious diagnosis, the first question we say is, where are you going? Right. Who are you going to see? And, and that seems to me a fundamentally unfair thing. If it's knowledge that needs to travel, why should people have to travel if the knowledge can? Richard, thank you very much. Pleasure.